The book of Acts is where we are this morning. Please turn in your Bibles. If you have a Bible, that's great. Acts chapter 27. If you do not have a Bible, and you actually really don't have a Bible, not even at home, and you're here, uh, please grab one. Um, you can get one right now back by the sound booth. Take it with you. We'd love to make sure. We want to make sure that each and every one of you have Scripture to, to read and to get to know our good God and Savior through as He revealed Himself in His Word. So, we're in Acts chapter 27. <clears throat> Let me remind everybody that we're headed in the Christmas season coming up and starting November 30th, there'll be a new series called The Canticle of Christmas, Latin word for song or hymn. Uh, there are four of them in the Gospel according to Luke chapters 1 and 2. And then the uh, Christmas Eve, we'll have a candlelight service here, of course, it's Wednesday, I believe, this year, December 24th, 7 p.m. as we celebrate the first advent of Christ. Uh, that song will come from Philippians chapter 2. Then in January, uh, after the new year, there will be a new series called The Gospel According to Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll look at this great uh, redemptive historical narrative and, and see Jesus all through it in the gospel. So um, that's going to take us at least to late spring, early summer. So that's, that's where we're headed. But today, we're going to finish up Acts... Uh, or finish up um, the whole of Acts chapter 27. Next week, we will look at Acts chapter 28, which will conclude our series, uh, again, of this great redemptive historical narrative of the early church. I do hope and I do pray that we have grown a lot, that, that we have been encouraged, that we've been strengthened, and, and maybe some of us ha- have been kicked in the pants to move forward and to, to obey and to, to, to hear and to follow and to submit to the Spirit of God as He lives in us on, on mission to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. That's why we call it Spirit-Empowered Mission. So, um, you know, I'd love to in- talk with you guys. Um, you know, give me a call if, if you're really struggling. What does that really mean? Uh, any one of the pastor elders can, can share with you and give you uh, encouragement to live on mission with him. So as the book closes next week, Acts chapter 28, I want you to know, that it doesn't really close, okay? I, I want you to know that the story continues on through the church. There is, Acts 28 is the end of the book, but there is 29 and continuing on. That we are caught up, even this church, is a local gathering on the mission with Christ, powered by the Spirit, sent by the Father, sent by the Son into the world to declare and demonstrate the gospel. We have the awesome privilege, even when we close this book, of being caught up in his eternal plans and his eternal purposes as we live for his glory and salvation and joy of his people. And that's really important as we close this. I want to finish Acts on an up note next week. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week as we finish up this book. But we live to continue on mission with God. So let me just quickly bring everybody up to speed. You're in Acts chapter 27. Paul has now had three successful missionary journeys. Paul is though now a prisoner in, in Rome, or not in Rome, but he's going to Rome. He's a prisoner uh, in, in, in Caesarea under Roman authority. God made it clear to the apostle that he will not stay in Caesarea, that he will go to Rome. And that's where we're at. He's going to Rome. Although he's a prisoner, he will not remain a prisoner. He will go to Rome. And in Acts chapter 23... When he got arrested for the first time and now he's in, he's in chains, the Lord comes to him and the scripture says that God says, take courage, Paul, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. You have been declaring, you've been demonstrating, you've been telling and witnessing about me in Jerusalem, but you will go to Rome. You will testify about me in Rome. So he's not going there for a vacation. He's not going there to visit. He's going there to be a witness, to testify about Jesus. And this morning, Acts chapter 27 is a major part of the fulfillment of the promise that God had given to Paul. So far, in chains, Paul has given several defenses. Uh, apologia, we said, is like apologetics, a defense. He, he stood before the Jews. He stood before the leaders in the Sanhedrin. He stood before the, the tribune. He's the authority in Jerusalem. He stood before Governor Felix. Last week, he stood before Governor Festus. And he gave uh, and declared uh, the truth of his innocence, but also sharing his faith in Jesus Christ to all these leaders. Last week we ended in chapter 26 where Paul was given his defense, his, his, his apologia to 
King Agrippa. So it's moving up the ladder. You see in Jerusalem, you see um, the, the tribune who's in charge of the, of the military there. Then you see the governors. And now last week, he's before the king. Chapter 26, verse 31. Paul says, they say to one another after Paul gives his defense, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So Paul has defended himself over and over, and the conclusion is he's done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. He's done nothing to violate the Roman law. Now remember, this book was written to who? Anybody know? Theophilus, a military, a high-ranking official in the Roman world. And now Paul, excuse me, Luke is continually saying the same thing. Christianity was not against Rome. It was not of this world. It was not of this kingdom. There was nothing Paul did that deserved death or imprisonment. Verse 32, And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Rome. We would have let him go. But he has this, this, this promise. He, he doesn't know that, but God, we know that. He had this promise that, that he will go to Rome. And he's actually quoting Paul from chapter 25. He says, you've got nothing against me, nothing against me, but I appeal to Caesar. Remember, Paul's a Roman citizen, and he uses his citizenship while he's in jail in Jerusalem and Caesarea to say, take me to Rome. Okay? And we're going to see a lot more of that, how God and man work together. So, this story, Acts 27, turn there with me. If you are, let me, just, let me just say this. If you're here and you served in the Navy and you have any idea about being a sailor and working on boats, let me apologize right up front because I don't. So there's all kinds of, of nautical phrases here. Like we were in the courtroom. I felt comfortable there. I've been there. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been in arbitration. I've been in a lot of things, working in corrections. Like we're on the high seas for the next chapter. So I, I, I'm going to assume that most of you don't know the nautical terms either. So we're going to look at that today. Well, I'm going to explain them uh, because I looked them up. Okay, I looked them up. I don't know. So I looked them up. So it says some things here. I'm like, what is he talking about? So I, I, I'll let you know as we come through these nautical terms. And um, really the only, the only thing I've really... Not, you know, only ocean that I really do is, is my brother, Peter Hussey, who's sitting over here. You know, the only nautical I know is on Crooked Lake, right? He's got his foot up on the... The, the bow, which is, I'm just throwing, this is all I'm doing. That's what I know about nautical, you know what I mean? So, we're, we're going to move forward. And one other thing I want to say is we look at Acts chapter 27. Every single week, I think, since I've been here, I have given you an outline to follow. And for the two people that really love outlines that is here, um, I, I, I want to apologize to you. I don't have an outline. What we're going to do is we're going to look... Something different. We're going to look at this chapter. We're going to read it together. And then I'm going to take three or four breaks in between the narrative and just draw principles from the text. Okay? Expositionally. I'm going to draw right from the text a principle that we hopefully you could take home with you uh, this morning. So that's where we're going to go. But before that, for 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 the one person here that may like maps, let me give you a map. Some people like history. Yeah? All right. Me too. I learned because, you know. All right, so Jerusalem, down here, Caesarea. That red line is Paul's journey. It would be nice on like a November, you know, to take that trip on a nice big ship, but that's not what's happening here. So Paul is going to head north and then west. Okay, so you got Cyprus, Asia Minor, okay. Nidus, we'll see that in a minute. Camp Salome, Crete, there's Crete. Corda, we'll see that. Cyrene, North Africa, right? And there's Malta. He's going to wind up in Malta, and then he's going to be off to, uh, to Rome. So that's his kind of. So what's going to happen, you're going to see, is the ship is going to sail around these islands, and we'll look at that, see where he goes around Cyprus, and then down on the Crete. So you're thinking, so what? It, it, it'll, it'll, you'll see. Okay, you'll see. Here it is again, a little bit closer. So that's where we're headed. Okay, see that wiggly line? That's the wind blowing. You'll see. <laughs> the wind blows the ship around, so the little wiggly line. We don't know exactly where it was, but somewhere there, there's a storm. Okay? So that's where we're going. If you have a study Bible, you have the maps in the back of your Bible. All right? So it's, it's good to follow along. It's good to, to know what we're talking about, okay? Paul set sail for Rome. Chapter 27, verse 1, where we left off last week. And... 
When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Two, and embarking in a ship of the Adrian Medium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we just saw that, it was safe to, when you were sailed in those days, you stayed close to the shore. Just in case you, you were near land. You, you can get there when, when there was, where it was trouble. Remember, they didn't have these big ships, which you'll see in a minute. Um, they were rather big, but nothing like today. It was safe that way. So we put to sea, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus and or a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Okay, so see what's happening. Paul gets on a ship. He's in Caesarea. He needs to go to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. And now he's on a ship and he's heading west up the coast. Okay, and, and he's accompanied by this man. And I want you to notice, number one, that this man whom that is mentioned here in Scripture was Paul's traveling companion back a couple of chapter goes, a couple of chapters ago in Ephesus, Ephesus that he was with Paul. They had this mob. If you remember, they, they bum-rushed this mob. They grabbed two men that was, Paul's, uh, was with Paul, and they dragged these two guys into the theater. Wasn't for a movie, okay? It was in the theater to beat them to a pulp. That was this guy. So he's been traveling with Paul. Paul mentions him in Colossians. Paul mentions him in Philemon, that he was a brother, a fellow prisoner. There, there's friendship, there's camaraderie, there, there's communion between Paul and this dear brother. Now look at verse 1. It says we. You see that? It says we. Fifteen times the word we is in chapter 1, and it points to Luke. He's the author. So Luke's saying, I'm on board this ship. Aristarchus, uh, Luke, we're, we're on the board. We are sailing together. And, and, I, and I don't want to just walk past that. I, I want to stop for a minute, okay? Because I think the first principle that we could draw from this, we know the storm's coming, we know the difficulties coming with Paul, and I think one of the principles we can draw from this is it's better to walk through storms with friends. It's better to walk through storms with friends. One of the saddest, if you've seen God is not dead, um, uh, one of the saddest parts for me anyway in the movie is when that, that, that high-powered, what was his name, um, Mark, played by Dean Cain, successful businessman, he's an atheist, he's having dinner with his girlfriend Amy, right, she's a blogger, and she just found out that she got cancer and they're in the restaurant together. She's very upset. She tells this love of her life, the boyfriend that she loves. I've been diagnosed with cancer. Remember? And the, and the good old boyfriend, what a good guy, unsympathetic as they come, pretty much says, there's no benefit in, in you with me. We're done. Remember that? And of course, every, I, I think I went with my daughter. I'm not really sure. Maybe my wife, maybe both. But right away they look at me. Because I start crying. <laughs> I felt so bad. She's all alone. There was nobody in her life. And if you go to the movies with me, you don't have to say, and I love my dear sweet wife, are you crying? It's like, it's not allergies. It, I, I'm a softy when it comes to stuff like that. But I felt so bad. I remember thinking and feeling how terrible it would be to face such trial and suffering and storm all alone. I praise God for my wife. That I would not face those things alone. Paul is on his way to the most powerful city to see the most powerful man on the planet. He knows, I am sure, that it will not go well for Paul in Rome. Yet in God's good providence, he comforts Paul by not going it alone. Even our great God and Savior gathered friends around him when the storms of life came crushing in on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, on the night in which he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night that drops of blood from his forehead and the stress and the anguish of what was about to take place. He was, he was going to drink of the cup, the wrath of the Father, as he hung on the cross. He brought friends with him, Peter, James, and John. Family, you and I were created in the Imago Dei. In the image and likeness of God, one God, three persons, enjoying eternity, eternal relationship with one another, pouring love and glory on one another, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the dance. 
We're not meant to do this alone. And some of you, I, I, I want to encourage you, draw you out of that isolation. Join a community group. Live life together. Don't live it and do it alone. We were not meant to do that. And look at the principle. Look at, again, verse 3. The next day we put in to Sidon. So he's heading north and he's, and he's in Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and what? Gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now Sidon is about 69 miles from Caesarea. It takes a full day to get there. And what happens with these ships is they embark in a port and it takes a day or two to unload cargo and reload cargo. So they may have been there for a couple of days and they said to Paul, listen, with their kindness though, Paul, you can go and visit your friends. Paul being a prisoner is not like today. Three square meals, cable, television, pools. It doesn't work that way in those days. If you didn't have friends caring for you, you were in trouble. That's why Luke went with him. That's why the other brother went with him. So here's Paul on the port getting food and, 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 and clothing that he may need for his trip. His friends are taking care of him. Now, I'm sure when he left the ship, although there was kindness shown to him, I'm sure a soldier went with them. It wasn't like he said, hey, come back in a couple of days. We'll see you then. But there was a lot of freedom. And I don't think Paul only got, as I read the New Testament, I read the book of Acts, I don't think Paul just got food and supplies from his friends. I think Paul sought out brothers and sisters in Christ and he was encouraged and strengthened and cried and prayed. We see it throughout the book of Acts. It's important to not do it alone when trials come. Next we see this trip ship. Look at verse 4. Sails under the lee of Cyprus. Putting out to the sea, from there he sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now again, I don't have any clue what the lee of Cyprus means. So I looked it up. So I'm going to tell you. You don't have to look it up. The lee of Cyprus means that they went on the outside, according to, to the map, around the island because the lee side was the side that protected the wind. So the island would absorb the wind so that the ship which didn't have an engine, it just had the sails, would be able to get into the current and go where it needed to go. If it was out in the other way and the winds were blowing against it, it would go in a direction it would not go. You're welcome. Now you know what the Lee means. Okay, we're going to see it again. So here they're going around. This is a great historical event. If anybody says the Bible is a legend, you say, I got got historical faculty. This is beautiful. Luke is recording all of this for us. Verse 5, and we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia and came to Myra and Lucia, verse 6. There, the centurion found the ship of Alexandria, that's Egypt, sailing for Italy and put us on board. Bigger ship going toward Italy. It's, it's a grain ship, according to verse 38. At the end of this trip, they throw this grain because of the storm that's out into the sea and from what I've read, Alexandria was a major uh, import for, for Rome for wheat. Like 200,000 pounds of wheat was delivered from Egypt, which is Alexandria, to Rome every year. So they caught this ship going in that direction, filled with the grain, and like, you going to Italy? We are too. They get the prisoner, all, and they get on this ship. That's what's going on. Verse 7. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. You can see things are starting to change off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further or farther, depends on if you're from the south or not, I say further, but we sailed under the lee again of Crete, off Salmon. So again, they're going around and trying to stay protected from the winds. Remember again, there's no, there's no engines. They had it like a rudder, but it was more like a, uh, uh, it was more like paddles, but so it's not this, this motorboat that, you know, you've got to remember, it's 2,000 years ago. They had the mast, the, the wind would blow, and it would take it away. Look at verse 8. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. Right? Verse 8. Now they're coming by Crete, Fair Havens, near the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, verse 10, listen, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. 
But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Paul had permission to speak, which is not very um, common, but they respected him, obviously. But they're like, listen, man, you're a Pharisee, you're a prisoner. We're going to go the way which we think we should go. That's going to change. Verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in the majority, in, excuse me, verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided, you know, let's put out the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both the southwest and the northwest and spend the winter here. Stop. Paul's concerned about his traveling. According to verse 9 and 10, he had some experience in the weather. He had some experience. He said, let's stay at Fair Havens. It's fast time. That means, just in case you don't know, that means, again, I looked it up, it means it was time of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. So we're looking at the end of September, probably beginning of October. Now, according to the ancients, according to antiquity, you could travel in late September, but once you start getting into October, and particularly in November, you can't travel. you got to dock for the winter. They're pushing it. And Paul's like, listen, I'm telling you, we should not go this route. And they're like, we're not staying at Fair Heavens. I can see the guys looking over the deck and seeing this dumpy little world town, like we're going to be here for four months. Look at this place. I don't want to stay here. It's not good to dock here. There's nothing to do. We'll be, you know, we'll be throwing people overboard. Let, 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 let's see if we can move on to Phoenix, which is a bigger port, more fun, more things to do. We need to press on. That, that's what he's saying. And according to verse 13, look at verse 13, there, there was, a, there was a, 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 a south wind blew. And they're like, oh, let's, let's take this chance. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, suppose that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. And sailed along Crete, close to the shore. They did it again. But soon, a tempestuous wind called a nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee, again, of a small island called Cuda, that's near Crete, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, then, verse 17, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were, violent, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, verse 19, they drew the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Picture that. Things are getting really bad. They're trying all kinds of things. They're weighing the anchor. I still didn't even know what that meant, to be honest. I thought it means drop the anchor. It doesn't. If you're with me, say amen. All right, it means lift the anchor. All right, so they lifted the anchor, and then they are moving forward, and they're traveling, and all of a sudden this wind comes and wants to blow the ship apart. So they wrap these cables around it trying to keep it together because this tempestuous wind uh two phone costs meaning um typhoon is coming and this nor'easter which means the east wind and north wind that's why they call it the, the northeaster and this powerful storm is coming and and they're being driven along they try all kinds of things they're on the lee side of of kuda they they throw in stuff overboard they undergird this ship and and they're it's frantic and then it says, because they were afraid of the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and they again were driven along. Now, Sirtis is not a mattress. Sirtis, that's, you know, it's not a mattress. It's not a sea monster that they're trying to avoid either. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a three or four hundred mile stretch, right? Um, um, in the north, northern coast of Africa. And it was known to have poor visibility. It was known to have a sandbars, like shallow. And they, most sailors would not want to go in that direction. They're headed in that direction. They don't want to go in that direction because they're going to have problems. So they lower the gear. They go from fourth gear down to third gear down to second. I mean, they lowered the gear. I'm thinking, I didn't know they had gears. That's not what it means. <laughs> what it means... And if you're a sailor here, you probably know what it means. They drop the back anchor out, sort of like dragging the boat. So it's like a brake, but it's not the gears. But they, so they're like, we need to slow this puppy down. That's what they're doing, right? 
um, this is not going very well. Now, if, if you like um, studying your Bible, which I hope you do, look at verse 15 and verse 17 where it says, being driven along. I just want to take a side note, this is for free, that in 2 Peter chapter 21, that same Greek word used, driven along, driven along, that same word is used about the scripture. This is what it says. It says, the word of God was not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Same word powerful verb we see the scriptures coming alive like this boat at the mercy of the wind the wind is blowing they set the sails they're driven along the scripture says that that same mercy is what God used his mercy as he drove along the men who wrote scripture yes they were a part of the process but they were driven where God wanted to take them the authors of Scripture at the total mercy of God as they brought Scriptures into being. We have God's Word. Same Greek verb. Wonderful, powerful illustration. It's free. Verse 20. Then neither sun nor stars, it's getting bad, they can't see anything, appeared many days, and no small tempest lay on us. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. They had no idea where they were, right? No compasses, no cell phones, no calling in. They're like, we can't see where we're going. We don't see the moon, the stars, nothing. We don't know where we are. No navigation. And let me ask this question. Things are going from bad to really bad to really bad. Let me, let me ask this question. And you could, you could bang it around. Community groups, you can talk about it. Why would the Apostle Paul experience... Such storms, trials, and difficulties when he is obviously, clearly, scripturally in the center of the will of God on the way to Rome right where God wants him to be. Paul is not being disobedient. He, Paul, is moving right in in accord with the purposes of God. So why the storms? Why the contrary winds? Why does everything else seem to go wrong on this voyage? Could God, who is sovereign over the sea and the wind, could he have not brought the Apostle Paul with a nice sunny day, clear sailing to the place in which he wanted him? Why is it then that even when we're doing God's will, defined will, what he wants for us, that we oftentimes have difficulty in accomplishing it? Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, storms of life, we wonder if we're out of God's will. Now, you may have sinned grievously against God and sensed that storm. And you need to repent of that. I, I get that. But you may be in the midst of a storm and thinking, I heard from God. I know what I'm doing is scriptural. I know this is the will of God for my life. But there are storms in my life. I'm here to tell you that may be exactly where God wants you to be. In the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus feeds 5,000. The apostles see it. They're they're amazed by it. I'm sure they were. Uh, We would be. And then the next verse says in Matthew 14 that Jesus made, M-A-D-E, the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him on the other side and then sent the other crowds away. That word made means compelled, strongly persuaded. Meanwhile, we know the story. They get into a boat and a storm comes. And there comes Jesus walking on the sea. The storms of life are there in our lives many times so that we trust God. That we trust Him. That we are sometimes sent into the storm to teach us He has power over the storm. But we need to trust Him in the storm. So when there's a fierce storm, when we're in precisely the will of God, As Paul is, he's headed in the direction God wants him to be. He's not walking in disobedience. He does encounter the dark side of God's providence. Sometimes we think that we are in the will of God, living on mission with God. Everything is just clear sailing. Pardon the pun. I thought it was funny. But anyway, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, even when you're doing the right things, that trials and tribulations come. William Copper from England wrote these famous words. 
God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon, upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Sometimes it's right where God wants us to be. Look at verse 21. Keep moving. Since they have been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Hey, guys, listen. You should have listened to me. I, I like that. that. That's me. I'm like, yeah, Paul, tell them. Why don't you guys listen to me? And have not sailed set for Crete. I told you so. No, it's not there, but I, I'm adding that. It's ad lib. And incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart. For there'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the Lord, the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said... Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Their safety is what he means. Verse 25. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Two things. Two things. One, notice what Paul does. He stands up above all others in his desperate situation because of his calm faith in God. Verse 20 says that they were afraid. Verse 20 says that, I believe everyone's included, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus lost hope and were, were, were fearful. Look at verse 20. From then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And then the Lord comes to Paul and says, do not be afraid. What does that imply, family? He was afraid. God don't mix words. God don't waste words. Paul was afraid. You ever been afraid? The apostle Paul was afraid. But how does Paul do it? How does Paul trust God in this, in this time? Because God's presence, his ongoing reality of his personal and intimate knowledge of God was clear. He had heard from Christ. It's the third time he heard from Christ when he was in Corinth. Acts 18, don't be afraid, don't be silent. You keep on speaking. No one's going to harm you in this city. In Caesarea, Christ comes to him in chapter 23 and stands with him and says, take courage. In 2 Timothy 4, while he was in Rome, he, the Lord stood with him, strengthening him, and says, I want you to proclaim the gospel. And now Paul is on this west side of Crete. There's mountains and ocean they can't see. And if God were to open up their eyes spiritually, they would have seen giant angels around them protecting that boat, I'm sure. But God comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. The Apostle Paul practiced the presence of God. Now, we may not hear that audible voice, although God may speak to your heart in a powerful way. I, I grant that. Many times it's the power and the presence and the stillness of God's Spirit as we open God's Word and we soak in His presence in our life. Listen, staying alert to his presence with us, trusting him in the midst of the storms. The storms of life not only gets us through it, but number two, look, it gives us an opportunity to praise him. Paul says, yeah, I told you so, but then he goes on to encourage you. This is what God has said. He gives, Paul takes the opportunity and says, God spoke, God revealed, I want to encourage you to have faith in God. I have faith in God. He didn't say that just for his own self, although probably did, but he did it so that he could say, you need to trust in God. It wasn't, let's have a positive look. Get a lollipop. All your relationships will be great. Click your heels three times, you'll be home. He didn't do that. He says, God has promised. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not what I've done. God has stood. God has told me, you need to trust God. He used the situation to tell them about the Lord, to trust God, to trust his promises through the ordeal. In times of trials and storms of our life, people are not only watching us, but it opens doors of opportunity to declare how great God is. Now, when I, when I wrote that down, I thought, you know, Paul was afraid too. So I'm thinking, all right, let me, let me, let me, let me try to think this through. Paul was afraid. The Lord comes and says, Paul, Paul, 
Take courage. And then Paul says, God's going to rescue us. Follow that? And that made me think. When we're afraid, when we're in storms, do we try to hide our fear? Afraid that when we say, I'm afraid, I'm living in the will of God, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but the storm is in my life and I'm afraid, that somehow we need to defend God in that? We don't. Sometimes I wonder, like the Apostle Paul, can we say, I'm afraid, and then as people we live life together with, see us work through our fears, and then see us praise him in it, through it, and at the end of it, give more glory to him of his work in our life. That's what I think. We don't need to defend God. You know, if you read the Psalms, many times in the Psalms, they start out with, I feel alone, I feel abandoned, the, 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 you know, the people are against me, but it always ends, but you, the God of Israel, I will trust. It's okay to express fear in the midst of trials and difficulties, but he ends with praising God and giving glory to God, right? And then he preached about it. Verse 27, let's move on. When the 14th night had come, as we had been driven along with the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, uh, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Okay, a couple of things. One, the Adriatic Sea today is between Italy and the Balkans, but in that day it spread down into further into the northern Mediterranean. So they're out in open sea and they're drifting along and they're looking for a dock and then they did a, a, a sounding. I'm like, yeah? Would they do yell? That's what I thought. Hey, anybody there? You know, like they did a sounding. And then they, they dropped them fathoms. I don't I have a hard time just with metrics. Like, I don't know what a fathom is, so I'm going to tell you. A sounding means they dropped a rope with metal, ball, or something on the bottom to see how deep it was. It was 120 feet, the first one, then 90 feet. They're like, we're getting closer to the shore. That's what that means. That's what a sounding is, okay? And a fathom, just in case you're wondering, maybe some of you are like, wow, I learned what a fathom was today. I'm going to tell you. It's about six feet, about the, about the width of a man's stretching his arms out. So it's 120 feet, 90 feet, like we're getting closer, but we don't want to run up the rock, so we let the four anchors out the back, which is the stern, just in case. <laughs> and the bow is the? Okay, I went on my first trip on a large vessel last year. So I'm the guy, my wife is going to, she'll laugh, she's teaching today, but. I'm the guy that has, if you've ever been on one, they got directions everywhere. It took me an hour to find my room. <laughs> Port side, I, I have no idea. Could someone just say the front, the back, the left, and the right? I could do that. So <laughs> I'm like, I can't find my room. I'm like, we're on the other end of the boat. All right, let's go to the other end of the boat. You know? On the port side, all right, no, that's the other. All right, I'm like, it took me an hour. I was just so frustrated. <laughs> my, my poor wife's like, Leave him alone. And she's like staying like nine feet behind me like, <laughs> I can't find my room. I just want to get to my room, you know. Uh, very, very funny. But anyway, <laughs> so they're trying to sneak out the bow, yes, the front, and they're lowering this boat, but Paul's like, you know what, I know the deal. You guys are just trying to escape. So the boat they're lowering is like a dinghy. They're smaller boats at the larger ships, just in case you're wondering also, okay? Verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved, Paul says. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship, the dinghy, and let it go out. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them, take some more food. Listen, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. You know, it's one of those things that you're in so much stress. You're like, the last thing I want to do is eat. For me, I eat all the time. But for many of you, you just don't want to eat. Like, I, I, we're, we're working here. Verse 34, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. Not a hair on your head is going to perish. Verse 35. When he said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God. This is not a communion service. He's just blessing the bread. In the presence of all, and they began to eat. 36. They were all encouraged. And everybody started to eat. Verse 37. There were 276 persons. A big ship for first century. 
And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. <clears throat> I love this. I love that passage. And I love this narrative that teaches us so clearly something so important. It's the life of a Christian. It's the paradox of this narrative. Verse 22, Paul says, keep up your courage. Be courage. It's something you should do. No one's going to be lost. Earlier he said, everyone's going to be okay unless you stay in the boat. Everyone's going to be okay. God spoke to me. Stay in the boat. Now he's saying, not a hair on your head is going to be injured, but take some food so that you will have the strength and be saved. Like, well, wait a minute, Paul. God said what was going to happen. His plan, no man can thwart and change in his eternal plan. Right? Yes. The paradox that we see here many times as we approach life is one, lo- is one extreme or the other when it comes to the sovereignty of God. We say God is absolutely sovereign and his promises will always come to be. Not one person, Paul is saying, is going to die and all that is true. And therefore, there's nothing man can do to change the eternal plans and purposes and promises that God has determined. So who cares what you do? That's what some people would say. Notice Paul doesn't say do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God made a promise and therefore I don't care what you do. You, can, you, can, you can't die. It's not going to happen. God fixed it from all eternity and that's true. But he doesn't say that. Some say that because God is in charge, what we do doesn't matter. That, that's not what the scriptures teach. Well, the opposite. Some say what we do matters and our, we have real choice. That, our, our choices have real consequences. That too is true. But then God limits himself. God's not really in control. And some people go too far on both ends. It's, it's, it's either or. God is sovereign no matter what we do. Everything matters what we do because God is somehow not sovereign and he's limited. Do you see the difference? And did you see the, 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 the paradox? God's re- sovereignty, we are responsible. The train tracks run throughout all of Scripture. He is sovereign, we are responsible. God is perfect, just, righteous, sinless, light, no darkness in Him whatsoever, and yet we are held responsible for our sin. And one of the great ways that we see this in Scripture, if you remember we studied the book of Genesis together, is Joseph. Joseph was treated poorly, was sinned against by his brothers terribly beaten, sold into slavery. And then later on in chapter 45, as the prince of Egypt, he tells his brothers, and now do not be distressed, he tells his brother, or angry with me. Right? Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves, he says actually, because you, don't be angry and distressed with yourselves because you sold me into slavery. But it was God who sent me. It was God who sent me before you to preserve your life, all of Israel. All of Israel got preserved, right? So you sent me, that's your responsibility for what you did, but God sent me, that's his sovereignty over life. Joseph recognized his actions of his brothers were wrong, but they come under the great eternal decree of God. And Paul here in our text is saying, God is sovereign, his promises will, will, will come to pass, but you have responsibility. Don't get in that boat. Eat your food, take courage, gain strength. You see, you see that? Nehemiah, we're going to study in, in the fall. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 4, he's under attack, and he prays to God, help us out. God's like, you got it. I got your back, Nehemiah. Now tell those four guys to get some swords to go stand over there. I'm like, okay. God got his back because four guys got swords standing by the wall. Like, you know, it works together. That's the point. <laughs> Right? It works together. God is sovereign. Jacob, another one. Man, what a mess up that guy is. And yet he marries the right woman, or at least marries the woman of that, that in God's sovereignty. And who comes from that lineage? Jesus. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is not plan B, right? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. Paul makes it, uh, excuse me, Peter makes it clear that you crucified the king of glory by the predetermined plan of God. Which one is it? It's both. Paul, you see that all through this context here. Rick Warren says this. I love uh, this um, quote. God has a purpose behind every problem. 
Regardless of the cause, none of your problems could happen without God's permission. Everything that happens to a child of God is father-filtered. And he intends to use it for good, even when Satan and others mean it for bad. Because God is sovereignly in control, accidents are just incidents in God's good plan for you. There's a great designer behind everything. Your life is not a result of random chance, fate, or luck. There is a master's plan. History is his story. God is pulling the strings. That's what we see here. And, and, And before we move on to the last section, here's what happens, family. If you believe that God is sovereign and your choices don't have real consequences, you know what happens? You sit idly by, you're passive, you're not engaging. If you believe that God is not in control, you should be the most panic-stricken person among us. You, 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 you should be afraid. You really should be. Because if God is not in control, we're all in trouble. But when you have both, God is sovereign. Nothing comes to me without the loving hand of God. In all the decrees, God is purposeful. God is loving. God is working all things out together for the good of those who love him and call according to his purposes. I get that. I need to do what I need to do. I've got, I got things that I need to do, and I, I need to do those things, but God is sovereign. That frees you. Because when you try to play God, you're going to stress yourself out. When you sit around doing nothing, God's not going to use you. Okay? So it's a balance. Okay? Let's look at verse 39. We'll wrap it up. Now, when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. I'd be like, yeah, bay with a beach, let's go there. On which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. Verse 40. So they cast off the anchors, left them in the sea. At the same time, loosened the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind. I'm trying to think of all this in my head. uh, They made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable. It's the front, and the stern was being broken up, that's the back, in the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them swim and escape. Verse 43, the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered them, he ordered those who could swim, swim, those who can't. It says the rest went on planks, verse 44, and pieces of the ship, okay? So everything is breaking up, people are swimming, the, the centurion says, we're not killing the prisoners. The reason they want him is just not because they just felt like killing prisoners. If the prisoner got away, they would lose their own life. Okay? So they're like, everybody who can swim, swim. Anybody who can't, take a piece with you and head to the shore. That, that, that's what's going on right there. Now, what's the point? Look at the very last sentence. As it was, they were all brought safely to the land. Yeah, almost like we went on a journey with him, amen? You're like, yeah, it's been long enough. But we, it feels like we went on there. He made it to land. And the point is, God kept his promise. The promises of God are not like this man that I read. He's 67 years old. His name is Russell Herman. Listen to what he did. He died in 1994 in Illinois. In his last will and testament, he gave the following order and promise. billion to the town of Cabin Rock, 2.4 billion to the city of East St. Louis. He donated 1.5 billion for projects in Southeast Illinois, and his final act of of generosity left six trillion dollars to the Federal Reserve to pay off the national debt. It's been five times that we know. 1994. Here's only one problem: when he died, the only thing he owned was a 1983 Oldsmobile. And here's the lesson, you know, Russ and Herman did not have the resources to make any of his promises a reality. But that's not with God, right? He has all the means to make good on his promise. So at the end of the text, we see God keeps his promises. And, And let me just caution you that when God keeps his promises, he keeps his promises in the context in which he gave it. Be careful. Stand on the promises of God. I I agree. Jeremiah 29, 11. Everybody loves to stand on that one. For I, have the, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I don't think Paul, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think when Paul had his head in the guillotine, because he's going to get his head chopped off in two years, he's claiming that promise. I don't think so. Plans, plans, to, you know, plans to prosper, boom, head gone. God didn't keep his promise. No, God keeps his promises. You just claim the promise that wasn't for you. So you have to be careful. 
There are promises for particular people at a particular time that we draw principles from. You know, that passage in Jeremiah 29 was written for an exiled people who were returning, we're going to look at that when we look at Nehemiah, to a land. But the lesson that we could draw from that is that God keeps his promises. We can learn principles that the promise that God gives us, he will keep. We can learn that God has plans for his children. Maybe they're different, but God does have a plan, a purpose in what he does. Okay, so there's hope. I mean, there's things we could draw. We know the principle. We've got to be careful standing on promises that were not meant for us. Just a few. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a universal plan for all Christians. Look at the lilies of the field, Jesus said. They don't toil. The birds of the air, don't worry. You know, don't worry about anything. You're more valuable to them than they are. That's a promise for you. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. That's a promise for you. You know, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for me. That's a promise for you. Philippians 4, 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and mind in Christ. So just be careful. God keeps his promises. Keep it in the context Read your scripture, understand what he's saying, draw principles, learn the character of God, understand his word, take to the promises and hold them. But hold them correctly. Now, let me end our time together saying one last thing. Give me five more minutes with me. This is important. I want everybody to catch this. There are times in your life, there are times in my life that we are going to have storms. If you're in one, you know what I'm talking about. If you just left one, you know what I'm talking about. If you are not in one, you're heading to one, just let me know when you get there. You'll know what I'm talking about. We're either in one, we just left one, or we're headed to one, right? What made Paul so assured in the midst of the storm? You can go through a storm, you can go through difficulties in your life, and you can come out on the other side bitter and not better, right? There's an old saying that says the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So we're going through the same thing. We're going through a storm. One soft, one gets hard. How do we know? How do we know and what does the text show us on how we can be assured that like Paul, going through the storms and difficulties and trials in our life, that we can come on the side encouraged and strengthened by God. Look at verse 23. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom, look, I belong and whom I worship. Theology says God is sovereign. Relationship says my God is sovereign. That's covenant language filled with possessives. I could say, look at that nice lady and I could say, look at my beautiful wife. I could say, there are four young girls. I could say, those are my daughters. Paul understood whom he belonged to. Paul understood that he was God's and God was his. Paul doesn't make the mistake and say, the storms of my life, where are you, God? The storms of my life, I don't have a relationship with you anymore. The storms of my life is because you're trying to get me or you're, you're trying, you don't care about me. Where are you? It's the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. How do we get to that place, family? Centuries earlier, there was a man named Jonah who was also in a ship, who also had sailed, who also had a storm at sea raging out of control. Do you remember? Jonah was told by God, go to Nineveh and preach, but because he was a racist and a bigot and didn't want nothing to do with the salvation of people that were not like him, he ran away and went into a ship. And what does God do? As he sails off, sends a storm. Sort of just like this storm. The storm is coming after Jonah. Jonah knows that he deserves it. He runs to the bottom of the ship. He knows his judgment. He knows his punishment. And he runs away. And if you read the story, as the story goes, he also knows that the sailors who are on this ship are going to be destroyed. And, Jonah, and they say to Jonah, What shall we do with you? That the sea may quiet down, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Is that word. He said to them, Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me 
that this great tempest has come upon you. In other words, this storm is God's judgment, the storm is God's wrath, and only if you throw me over, only if you toss me over the sea, will you be saved. And what do the sailors do? You got it. And they throw him overseas. And then centuries later, just shortly before we read our text, Jesus Christ comes on the scene, Matthew 12, and calls himself the greater and the better Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was three nights and three days, three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus calls himself the greater and better Jonah. Jesus is showing us, showing Paul, showing those in the day of Matthew that on the cross he was thrown into the ocean of God's wrath. Jonah, while in the belly of the fish, says, I am forsaken by God. I have been banished from his sight. And yet Jesus on the cross, forsaken by God as well, thrown into the sea of God's wrath, says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was put under an ocean, and that ocean was the wrath of God. All the plagues, all the sins, all the uh, uh, folly and stupidity is poured out on Jesus. Peter, excuse me, Paul knew that there was a storm that he deserved, that you and I deserve, that we don't love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one continually to live perfect before him. Therefore, we deserve the wrath against God us for our sin but jesus is saying when he says, i'm the greater and better jonah jesus is saying when you turn to me when you believe in me when you trust me really realizing that i took for you the deserved wrath thrown into the storm as god's wrath the father poured out on me abandoned while i am hung on the cross i got the storm that you deserve so that when your storms come you will know you will never be abandoned You will never be abandoned by the Father. The storms in doubt we can know for sure because Jesus was abandoned, we will never be. I got the storms that you deserve. So when a storm comes in your life and and you have doubts and you're not sure, you say, God is trying to get me, God is trying to punish me. Jesus received the punishment on the cross. Now we know for sure, Paul knew for sure, that when storms come in your life, it's not vengeance. It's not judgment. Jesus took that on the cross for us. Even as a child of God that we walk through some things and we cause turmoil in our own lives. Listen, the cross, the gospel makes it very clear that Jesus absorbed our judgment and wrath and therefore we will never fear condemnation. We will never fear condemnation. Jonah was tossed into the raging stormy sea to save the crew, the sailors. Jesus was tossed into the raging stormy sea on the cross to save you and me because Paul knew it in the midst of his storm He trusted God's presence and God's promise to him. Jesus Christ, if you're a child of God here this morning, through faith you can be assured that he loves you. And when the storms come, he will never abandon you. It is not his judgment of condemnation. It may be his loving chastisement, but whatever it may be, he's your father eternally because Jesus Christ on the cross bore the storm for you and for me. Three days in the belly, three days in the earth, I'll rise again. Let us pray. Father, you're a God who keeps your promises. In some ways, it almost sounds silly. We know that you are so powerful. You are the omnipotent, awesome, creator God who answers to no one. And yet, Lord, you have given us such precious and good promises. Lord, and sometimes we admit, we, we don't stand on them. We don't cling to them. Lord, we ask that you would give us strength to, to see the promises that are meant for us and to stand firmly on them. Lord, we're thankful that uh, we have this narrative and we ask that as storms come, as the winds blow, as, as it looks like things are going from bad to worse, Lord, our anchor will be Christ. The work on the cross, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice, the resurrection from the grave will 
press deeper into our hearts so that we would know the gospel more clearly, love Jesus more sincerely, treasure him above all treasures so that in the midst of storm we can have the assurance of his presence because of all that he accomplished at Calvary. Father, we pray for those who have never trusted you who are facing storms, who, have, who are looking at the storm in their life or maybe the storm that will come to them in the last day when, when the lake of fire has been prepared for them, Lord. We pray right now that your spirit will draw them away from their sin, away from their condemnation, to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life, surrendering their life because of all that Jesus did as the storm was poured out on him on the cross. Father, help us to be a people who trust you, And Lord, help us, if we've never received you, to do so today. We invite you, Lord Jesus, into our lives.